You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. You know, when your heart's beating a little faster, it's uh, usually a sign of something. I don't know whether it's because I got a little bit of nervousness or because that was such a good song, but that's that's always great. You know, when James was saying, we need a music minister, we need a music minister, a lot of us were saying and thinking to ourselves, but James has got so much talent, you know, that we really don't need somebody else. Let him do it. But I passed him for three years, and I led the music all the time, too, and uh it was even worse on me because I have no talent whatsoever. I, I have the musical talent of a doorstop. If you thump it just right and you use your imagination, it might make a good hum. And, and that's the way I am. But uh, that's great. That really is. I, I take my watch off. I, I don't know if y'all know that story uh, about the little kid and the visitor in church. Uh, two little, one little kid was regular in church. Another kid was visiting with him. And... Um, each time they came to a point in the service, uh, the visitor kid would say, what does that mean? You know, the music minister stood up and he did this and why he did that. And there, he said, what does that mean? He said, that means stand up. So they stood up and then the music minister did this. And he said, well, what does that mean? And um, he said, well, that means sit down. And so they sat down and then later on, they, that went on through the service. And the preacher got up, he took his watch off and he laid it down there and he said, what does that mean? He said, doesn't mean a thing. But it does. I'm I'm fascinated by it. Uh, it doesn't mean anything at all. Um, the date was, uh, I believe, November 3rd, 1978. Uh, newspaper in Detroit that covered all the auto manufacturing ran two headlines. One said that Chrysler announces the biggest losses in history. And the other headline said that Iacocca accepts the Chrysler position. In the midst of uh, depression at that time, we were in a depression financially, economically. Chrysler Corporation, the number three auto manufacturer in the United States, was crumbling, and they had lost $160 million in three months. Lee Iacocca had just been fired, humiliated, by Ford Motor Company and kicked out of his position as president of Ford Motor Company. And regardless of how you feel about Chrysler or anything else, this is just to illustrate a point. I, I drive a, a Chevrolet and a Honda, so, okay. But Iacocca was faced with an insurmountable task, actually, to take an automobile manufacturing company like this and bring it back to solidity and bring it back to where it's a money-making proposition. And he said when he got into it that uh, he looked around and he just saw a helter-skelter organization. And he saw no 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 unifying uh, part to the company, that it was just all scattered all over the place. It had no purpose. But as he looked at it, he examined it, and he decided that he had a certain task to perform, and that was to bring it back up to where it was a solvent company. And to do that, he was going to have to acquire $1 billion, that's $1,000 million, in loan guarantees from our government. Now, 
in Washington, they're happy usually to hand out money if you want to study fishes below a, a dam project. They'll hand out money, but to buy this company back out, they didn't want to do it. So Iacocca looked at it, and he saw what he had to do. And then he set about with a plan, and he presented to Congress everything you can imagine to accomplish his task of acquiring that loan. First of all, he listed how many jobs would be lost if Chrysler Corporation folded. And then he went further than that, and he listed all the companies that would close and therefore lose other jobs, small manufacturers that supplied Chrysler with parts. He talked about how they would lose money, too, and lose jobs. And then he, to make it and bring it home more to each individual senator, he broke down how many jobs would be lost in each senator's district. And that brought it home, and he acquired his billion dollars. He set about using that money then, and, and he marketed the product, and he sold it. And seven years before the note was due, he paid all that money off. He paid it all back. And Bob, you like Chrysler products, don't you? Okay. Well, what does this have to do with me? I, you know, you say, I drive a Ford or a Pontiac. What does that have to do with me? Iacocca committed himself to doing this. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. He was uh, financially independent. He had been making $970,000 a year. And that's a lot more than I make. And um, he had been humiliated by one company. But he, he wanted to do this. This was his desire. And he committed himself to it. Now, we as Christians have a task before us. It's a task of sharing the gospel. And it's, it's a greater task than that. In a minute, I'm going to share a couple verses of Scripture and what specifically is our task. But what it calls for is a commitment on our part to share the gospel. Even as Iacocca committed himself to his task and his plan, we need to find out what our task and what our plan is also. And so I would say that the attributes of God would call forth for commitments on the part of believers. Would you pray with me at this time? Father, as we come, we, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for our pastor and the good word there. We pray for him that your blessings would be upon him at this time. And even as we know he's praying for us, Father, we, we give you thanks for that kind of commitment. Father, now as we open your word, we pray that you would be honored and that you would be glorified, and that we would be clear and understanding what the Word says to us. And we ask your blessings in Christ's name. Amen. The 12th chapter of the book of Romans begins a section where Paul moves from doctrinal teachings that he covered in the first 11 chapters, and Paul here in chapter 12 begins a section on what the practical matters of the faith are. Ron, I keep seeing you look up here. Is this, is this right? Okay. I'm just used to yelling out in the country. I'm not used to, to this. So in the first 11 chapters, Paul sets forth the greatest doctrines, and it's, it's, it's a, a uh, systematic approach to what God has done for man. He sets forth man's position before God in those first 11 chapters. He says what God has to do because of his attributes, because of his nature, what he has to do as far as judging man is concerned. Paul sets forth what God has done to provide for man's salvation, that he might escape that judgment. And then Paul, as he, as he concludes that part, he says, now you know this, and, you, and I want you to understand this, but now I want you to do something with it. 
You know, to study theology, and believe me, at seminary, you run across a lot of people who are like this, who want to study God, who want to study the Scripture, who want to study doctrines and theology, but it doesn't translate into their daily life. They don't do anything with what they've got. They live clustered away like monks in a monastery, and they don't want to do anything with what they've been given, with what they've been entrusted. Well, now as we have studied, now I'd like to say that we've all studied those first 11 chapters of Romans, I'm going to deal with a couple verses that everybody here probably knows very well and knows by heart and can, can um, repeat for us and, and uh, speak it right out. It's one of the first verses that, or these two verses are some of the first that I learned as a Christian. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The sacrifice of Christ calls for sacrifice on the part of his followers. Let's look at the word therefore, just what I've been saying. Therefore, he's referring back to these past 11 chapters where he has explained the doctrines of salvation to man. And he says, because God has done such great things for you, therefore, I beseech you, brethren. He says, therefore, He's not doing this on the basis of a threat or a command or anything else. We'll deal a little bit more with that in a minute. But he's doing this on the basis of what God has done for us. He is calling us to do for God. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. As he addresses them, he calls them brethren. He looks upon them as an even keel. Eye to eye, he looks at them. Even as I today would share with you what God has been putting on my heart. Eye to eye, I look to you as one equal with you in standing in Christ Jesus. I have no authority over you. I am simply sharing with you what God has laid on my heart. And so I look at you. And this is what Paul is saying when he calls them brethren. We all stand before God equal, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not what we have in this world or what we've done in this world that would take us to a point where we would stand one above another in the sight of God, but we all stand clothed only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can stand before God. And so Paul addresses these people as brethren. And he, he says, brethren, I, Paul. He didn't say, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the first one who brought the gospel to you who are at Rome, the one who probably led most of you personally to a commitment to Jesus Christ. He didn't use that authority. He didn't say, I'm an apostle. And you know that the authority that Jesus Christ gave to his apostles was such that anything they said to the church would be law. That's the authority that they had. That's the authority that they could have exercised. And Paul's mentioned in other letters that I don't lord my authority as an apostle over you. And I don't give you great commands. And as Martin Luther put it, this is uh, uh, Paul's reaction early to the Roman Catholic Church. And, and Luther said this was a, a Paul kicking against papal authority, but I don't think so. I think he's simply saying here that I, as an individual, I, just a common, well, I, I wouldn't say Paul was common, but I, as just an ordinary person, no better than you, I ask you this. I don't command you. I don't order you. I don't lay this out as a condition for your salvation that you do this, but I beseech you, 
I entreat you. It's a word that means actually, I call you alongside myself. I want you to walk beside me in doing this, that because of what God has done, I'm doing it. I want you to do it. Now, what is it that he wants us to do? It says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This word present means to put at the disposal of. Look back in the sixth chapter of Romans. Let's look at verse 13, verse 16, and verse 19. He says, neither yield, and I'm reading from the King James. I know that that James, Brother James, that sounds funny. Me to say Brother James, that's what everybody called me. Um, I know that Brother James reads from New American Standard. Is that what he used most of the time? Well, I like King James. I, I just, I was raised on it as far as a new Christian. So let's read from the King James. If you got something else, you can read it too. But neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. That word yield is what he's meaning here. Same word as is translated present. He says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but rather yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And verse 16, it says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves or, to, or whom you present yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have presented your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now present your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Paul's talking there about a change in you, that you don't present your body to the devil to do the devil's work, but rather that you present your lives to God to do righteous things, no longer to sin, but to do righteous things. Here in verse 1, chapter 12 again, he says, I beseech you, I entreat you, I call you to walk beside me and present your bodies unto God. This is a technical term in the Greek, present, that's, that speaks of an offering. And as you look back in the Old Testament at what took place at the offering, the offering that was to, to satisfy God's righteousness, his indignation at the sins of man, you saw that they took a, an unspotted lamb and they took it and they gave it to the priest. And the priest took that lamb and laid it on the altar. And there on that altar, his throat was cut and his insides were open and he was placed in a fire and he was burned up. Now, is he asking us to put ourselves up on the altar and kill ourselves? No, because of this word living. He says, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that is alive, that's still moving about in the earth that's still doing things. He, he's talking about your body here as the only agent of moral activity. Now, that's a, that's a long way of saying, or that's a real technical way of saying it, that you don't do anything except you do it in your body. And so if you do something good or if you do something bad, it's your body, it's your actions every day that speak through that. Though it, your deeds speak for you, for what's inside you. Now, you might think good thoughts, but if all you do is bad deeds, that's what comes across. And that's what's exhibited. Now here he's saying that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
holy and acceptable unto God. How are we holy before God? How can we make ourselves to be holy? I said before, we can stand only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ before God. That's the only way we can be made holy. And if we're believers in Him, then we stand in His righteousness. But I mentioned a moment ago about who it is that presents a sacrifice unto God. It's a priest. Now, can we serve and function as priests? Well, I submit to you that first, the epistle of 1 Peter says that we can. The second chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says, You also, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And this is your purpose, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Here's what we've been called to do back here in Romans. What Paul is saying, that we are to be a spiritual house. It's funny how these two men thought so closely. Their minds ran so parallel to each other, having written uh, with a difference of probably 10 to 15, maybe 20 years difference in the time that these two letters were written, certainly hundreds of miles apart, and yet they've thought along the same lines of presenting yourself, of presenting spiritual sacrifices unto God. Now, as we looked at the priest in the Old Testament, it took a special person to offer that, that offering on the altar. But here, as we look in the New Testament, we are simply, we are all priests. We are all to offer ourselves up. And that's what he says here, and that's what he means here when he says that it is your reasonable service. As God has done for us, it's only reasonable that we should return unto him what he's already paid for. Now, first of all, God created you. And because He created you, therefore He owns you. But more than that, if you're a Christian, He has bought you with the price of Jesus Christ. And so you're twice His. And how about three times when you give yourself back to Him as a spiritual sacrifice unto God? And I, probably the biggest word in this whole verse here, when you look at all the things that we're to do, the thing that amazes me the most, and I, I'm, I've missed this every time, Every time I've read this, I've missed this word until last night it came to me that the greatest thing about our offering ourselves unto God is that it is acceptable. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Holy and acceptable. So much of the time that we spend in this life, we're dealing with rejection. We're rejected as, as young people. We're rejected by our peers. Even as adults, we're sometimes rejected by our peers. We're rejected by the workforce when we get through with school. We don't have anything to do. And I, I knew when I graduated from college that I really didn't have anything to do. Nobody really wanted me, and so they, I went to seminary because nobody wanted me. <laughs> so we're rejected a lot of times by different people, but God has said here in His Word that it is an acceptable thing that you present yourself before him. You take what you look at, and in all humility or in all honesty, when you look within your heart and you see the darkness that lies there, and you see the inability to speak, the inability to do things with your hands, to serve God, and yet if you're willing to put yourself before God, he's willing to accept it. 
no matter how much you stutter or stumble or you're tied to your notes or anything else, God's willing to accept you if you present yourself before him as a sacrifice. Now, as we look at this, Paul has called upon us to do something very reasonable. Now, how is it that we are going to come before God? Now, certainly, I've already mentioned that we come before God in Jesus Christ. But there is something else that we are called upon to do that we are supposed to do ourselves. And there is an activity on our part. And I submit to you that the goodness of God guides the mind of the Christian. Look in verse 2. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. What does it mean to be conformed? I think we all know what that means. It means to be shaped by some force outside yourself. A lot of you guys uh, in construction, you've worked with drywall. And uh, in the past few years, they've come up with premixed drywall. It comes in a little square box. And if you work at a lumber yard, it's heavy because you've got to carry about a hundred of them. And you move them around all the time. But inside that box is a square plastic bag. It's square because the the drywall that's inside it has become conformed to that box. And when you take it out of that box and you drop it on the floor, it becomes conformed to the floor. And usually when you do that, the hole rips in it and it becomes conformed to whatever you try to pick it up with. <laughs> Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't take on the outward appearance of this world. And I'm afraid as a church today, we've done this. We're hiring, we're looking at our church and we're saying, well, why are there so many people on Sunday morning and there aren't people on Sunday night? And uh, one of the biggest churches in San Antonio is doing this now. They brought in an outside consulting team. Uh, and I don't think that they're a Christian consulting team, but they want to audit their church uh, system and see what they can do to get more commitment on the part of their people. They're auditing it. And I'm saying to them, I would say that if he asked me, but I don't think he's going to ask me. I would say to him that um, the pastor of this church, that that's wrong. You don't need to look outside the church or outside the word of God, outside the realm of the, the spiritual revelation that we have to determine what the church is and what the church needs to do and what the church is doing wrong. You don't assess the church by the world's standards. And you don't live in the church by the world's standards. But I think we do this. I think we have come to this point of conforming to the world in our worship. Not necessarily here. If, if it were my church, I would do something else. But no. We don't conform to the image of the world at this place. It's not our desire to do that. Now, we want to practice with the choir and polish them so that they present themselves and their music as an offering of praise unto God in the very best way that they possibly can. But it's not for their own glory, it's for the glory of God. And so it is that we want to polish and trim away the fat from our church programs. But as individuals, excuse me, as individuals, let's bring it home and let's see, are we casual and laid back about the way we approach church? One of the early church fathers said that when you have ceased to desire to be better, you have ceased to be good. When you stop wanting to be more Christ-like, you have become bad and evil because you're on your way then back to destruction. Take on the appearance or the shape of society. 
you know, our society now has, has a laid back image, you know, and I, I like that because I'm a lazy person. I, I like to be laid back. And it said, take it easy, you know, slow down, enjoy life, be laid back. But, you know, even society is lying in that because when you look at the job market, when you look at, um, for instance, computers and what has happened to computers, if you're like I am as far as computers, you don't know what they are. I really don't. I mean, I go to the library at seminary. You ever try to figure those cards? You used to have a card catalog, you know, you could look up what the number on the book was. Now you got to go over there to the computer. And I can't ever get them to work, so I don't go to the library anymore. And if I take that, if you take that laid back look, if you're in a computer field and you take a laid back attitude towards life and towards computers, you're, you're going to be 20 years behind next week because it's changing so fast. Our whole society is changing that fast and we're trying to be laid back. We're trying to be casual about things that we do. I think sometimes we reflect this in what we do, what we say, and how we come to church. We come to church oftentimes the same way we go to a Texas Rangers baseball game. We're dressed casual. We meander in a little bit late. And I'm not, I'm not, I never have yelled at people about being late. My people were always 15 minutes late at my church, and I never, we just went on with it. And then they got out 15 minutes late, and they blamed it on me. But that wasn't so. When we look at what the world is saying to us, be laid back be cool i think a lot of us are adapting that to what we look at as far as christ we are being laid back we are being cool we are taking it easy we're not in any hurry why god's in control and god's going to take care of everything and all the time people are lost and dying are we conformed a lot of us harry says now Let's go on and let's look at transform because I'm running out of time. I didn't think I would, but I'm running out of time. Transform. What does he mean by transform? He means that you would be changed, that you would undergo this metamorphosis, the old illustration of the, the, uh, the little, what was he? He becomes a butterfly anyway. The little worm that spins a cocoon and then he becomes a butterfly. That's an old illustration of what it means to be transformed, to take on the new life. James preached about this not long ago. Uh, putting off the old man and putting on the new self and how sometimes we want to reach back over there and take the old man and put him back on and haul him around. And that's where you live in no soul's land because you're all alone at that point. You're no longer a part of the world because they recognize that you're a Christian. And you're not really a part of the Christian society, the church, because you're walking around with the old man on you, the old sin, the old nature. You're carrying it about with you. You're in no soul's land. You're really alone. You made a commitment once in your life to accept Jesus as Savior, but you've never gone further than that. Some of you, it's 10 years ago that you made that commitment. Some of you, it's 15 years ago. Some of you, it's just a year ago or six months ago, or maybe it was just yesterday that you made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, but today you're not committed to that anymore. You said yesterday morning, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. And you come this morning and you didn't say that. You can't be transformed unless you go through this process of being renewed by the renewing of your mind. Consciously, you have to make an effort in your life to say, God, today I'm going to be committed to you. Today my thoughts and my actions are going to be committed to you. 
And every day you've got to say that, God, I'm going to accept whatever you've got for my life and I'm going to do it because you are the one who's going to strengthen me to do it. God, I'm committed to you every day. And if you're the last time you said that was a week ago, you're a week behind. How can I illustrate this point? Somebody who has never worked on a car that was manufactured since 1965. 1965 mechanic. You brought him up here today and you've rolled in the simplest General Motors product and he got underneath that hood, he'd be totally lost. Because the, the needs of today, as far as a mechanic are concerned, very different from what they were 20 years ago. So it is that the needs of the Christian today, what we need to have within our hearts to deal with the needs of people in our daily life is a deeper commitment than what we needed yesterday because today is here and now. We dealt with yesterday. We want to deal with today and to be committed, be transformed, daily renewing. Our purpose in this, James does it, I'm going to do it too. I'm going to get through this last point real quickly. Our purpose in this is God's. God's goodness is the reason why we're going to be committed. Why are we going to present our bodies a living sacrifice? Why are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus? Why? For this purpose, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may do what? That you may prove that you may investigate and experience and demonstrate for the people around you the will of God that you may prove it to be real not that you're giving lip service to it but that you're actually living it out in your life that it has become real to you and you're proving it to them that it's real and if they have a reasonable mind and the spirit works upon them they're going to know that you're real and that you're true further than this he says that uh, you may prove what is that good and acceptable. Let's look at what does it mean that it's good. God's will is good. What more can we say except God's will is good? What man seeks to do oftentimes or so many times turns out bad. And no matter how pure our motivations for doing something, if God's not in it, it's no good. It's not going to be accomplished. It, it turns out bad. Ministries happen this way. Men who don't have a, uh, or who are called, say, to a foreign mission field, and then they set up another ministry because they don't really want to go to the foreign mission field. These men do good work. They have good motivation. They really want to serve God, but they don't want to do what God's calling them to do. But if they would go and do God's will, then it would be good. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? God's will is perfect. There's no problems within it. There's nothing wrong with it. What we see as objections to the will of God are from our own vantage point that we see things from an earthly vantage point. And we're looking up and we're trying to say, it's like being down in a valley and something's going on on the mountaintop and you're down here at the bottom and you're going, well, I don't understand that. Well, if you just accept that what God's doing is right, you don't have to understand it. Just accept it and live it and believe it. But here it is, this word acceptable. It's the same word as in verse 1 where it says that we're acceptable to God. He says here God's will is acceptable to us. 
It's not something where he's waiting for you to, as James has mentioned before, waiting for you to make a commitment and say, God, I'm going to do whatever you want to. And he says, oh, great. And he pours a bucket of hot coals on you. That's not what God's doing at all. But his will for our lives is acceptable. It's easily acceptable to do his will, to walk in his word, to walk according to his spirit. That is acceptable unto us. It ought to be. Why? Because it's what's best for us that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In a minute, we're going to have a, a hymn of invitation. Let me say what our invitation is about. We want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, to come and accept Jesus Christ. But this message has been more than a call to non-Christians to be committed to Christ, but it's a call to Christians to be committed to Christ. If you're trying, as I said, to live today's walk of faith on yesterday's commitment and you find a great deal of frustration, that's the problem because you're still trying to do it with yesterday's commitment. It's not enough. You need a fresh, new commitment every day. It's hard, yes, it's very hard to make that kind of commitment and to make it public at that. We're asking you to come down here. We're not just asking you to sit right where you are and make a commitment to God, although I'd love for you to do that. But more than that, I want you to come here to the front and make it public that you're committing your life again today to Christ.